Hi. I'm going to start my journey into the 90s and it, with, with something a little bit like this. You ready? And then there's a voice, 1990s, time for goo, 19... And there's this thumping dance beat underneath. Acid house track, Guru Josh, Infinity. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. Big in 1990. So... I'm just going to take you a step back. I'm going to take you to 1989, New Year's Eve. No, 89, 90. <laughs> I'm a 14-year-old kid sitting in my room listening to the radio. Uh, I don't think Triple J was quite on air just at that point, a bit later in the year. But I'm sitting there listening to the radio and I'm not allowed to go to any New Year's parties or anything like that. I'm turning 15 in a couple of weeks' time, but Dad didn't let me go out. Anyway... A few things had led up to this moment of contemplation in the previous six to 12 months. I'd been in year 10 in 89. And one of the first things that, that was a surprise for me or something that, that was significant for me was my dad let me go to the amphitheater to see my favorite band. Now, this was pretty cool because up until then, nighttime activities for me were restricted to blue light discos and school socials at the driver high gym. So, to be able to go to the amphitheatre to see a gig, a live concert, stimulating environment, thousands of people, see your faces watching a stage, being able to run up to the stage and see your band. The band? 1927, but please don't judge me. <laughs> I was 14, all right? So, anyway... Um, you know, and you, you could go up to the stage and see your band and you'd go to the back hills and see the young teenage couples rolling around, pashing. Actually, I was one of them. But nonetheless, I had a great night. And to this day, I still really enjoy going to the amphitheatre. It's a great venue. Now, as I said, I was in year 10. So at school, the teachers were really putting the pressure on. What are you going to do when you grow up? What am I going to do when I grow up? You need to select your subjects for senior high, which is going to dictate your future. Oh, no pressure. God. Around the same time, a friend of mine who was just about to turn 15 told me she was pregnant. Now, it's not as if I didn't know my friends were having sex. They talked about it all the time. But to have a friend who fell pregnant and wanted to keep the baby, this shook my world. I didn't really know where to go with that or what to do with that. And then, and then the Berlin Wall came down. I mean, this significant historical event right there on our TV, and my parents were pretty good at letting my brother and, or making my brother and I aware of, of world events. But we're sitting there watching this on TV. We're hearing Gorbachev's speech. We're, we know, we're, we're there. We're watching the footage of people surging towards the wall and picking away at it and being excited. And my mum says, oh, yeah, Inga, JP, and the kids are there. I'm like, well, What? I, well, so Inga, my mum's sister, right, so this is my auntie, uncle and cousins, are at the Berlin Wall, what I'm watching on TV. So it was as if I was instantly transported there. I was there. And it's probably the first time I really felt connected to something else other than my world in Darwin and Palmerston. Anyway, so there I am sitting in my room, 1989, New Year's Eve, thinking about all these things and how they'd affected me. Song comes on the radio, Prince's 1999. Yeah. 
And I started to think, oh, this is the last decade of the millennia. This is really important. So much is going to happen. I'm going to finish high school. I'm going to turn 18. I'm going to become an adult. I'm going to live. <sighs> and then this wave came over me. I just want to be at the Edmund Street party with my friends who were there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, some of my friends went underage. Um, but apparently what they used to do is block off Edmund Street and have a stage set up and the bands would play and people from Squires, you could come in and out of Squires and the club, which was at the time, I believe, called 1990s. That place has had so many name changes. Yes, Fanny's, Dick's, whatever. <laughs> After that, Rockets, Time Nightclub. Uh, but, you know, I was in my room listening to the radio. The next couple of years, keeping all these things in mind, I decided my last two years of high school, I was going to be studious and, um, you know, make a real go of it. Now, at the end of year 10, so end of year 89, uh, some of my school friends decided to take up trades and traineeships. The end of year 11, more of our school friends decided that school wasn't really for them. So by year 12, there were 35 of us. Now, I went to drive a high. Some people tell me that it was considered a bit of a rough school. Um, I don't know, what do you, how do you define rough? I mean, yes, I saw a lot of fights. Yes, I had friends coming in and out of Malak House, the precursor to Dondale. But I never had any problems because I had Marco, the janitor. <laughs> he was my dad. <laughs> so... Marco was loved by most and feared a little. So even if I wanted to run with the Wild Bunch, he would have known about it immediately. <laughs> anyway, more world events unfold and I become increasingly interested and I have discussions with my teachers and, and my parents. And, uh, you know, I guess this is where my humanitarian side evolved or as my friends like to call me, the hippie. And I went to my first world, my first war protest against the Gulf War in 91 in January here at Raintree Park. Uh, I was wearing my peace symbol earrings and my peace symbol t-shirt, which a friend had bought for my birthday and Christmas present, I think, because I guess they figured that's what a hippie should wear. <laughs> anyway, I was very stylish. Um, my mum came with me because she was as passion passionate about it as I was. So I just turned 16 and I was about to start year 12. Now, my mum, she's Dutch Indonesian, and she's from the Netherlands, so that's the link with my aunt going over to Berlin, though I lived in the Holland. Uh, and she came to Australia in the mid-60s on a working holiday. My dad, from the former Yugoslavia, uh, and he came over in the late 50s, and they met here in Darwin at East Point Hotel. So, Gulf War protest, I went. World things started happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, my dad left Yugoslavia because he was a free spirit, really. He loved to watch movies and he loved the idea of travel. So he left Yugoslavia and he came to Australia and made his way up to Darwin to become a croc hunter. Uh, here he, he met a lot of other Yugoslavs. Now, I grew up not really knowing the difference between the Slavs, as we like to call them. Uh, I didn't know about any ethnic differences. In 1991, mid-year, halfway through year 12, Croatia and Slovenia declared independence from Yugoslavia. Now, Dad had predicted this back when we were watching the Berlin Wall. He said more things are to come, and he predicted the demise of his own country. 
A couple of days after this event, Slovenia and Croatia declaring independence, my dad was down, I think, pretty sure it was Kavanagh Street, and he saw his friend, uh, one of the Slavs that he'd met, a Croatian man, and he waved to say hello and perhaps have a conversation. His friend was with his son and his friend turned to his son and said something and immediately crossed the road. They never spoke again. Now, Dad was relaying this story later that night to us and it was, he was visibly upset and I was confused, to be honest, because I'd grown up with this man in my life. I mean, this man had been practically like a brother to my father. So it was as if this breakup of Yugoslavia was the breakup of a trusted friendship for my father. As the Balkans intensified, I watched my father fall apart as he watched his country fall apart. And, you know, he would obsessively watch the news, read the papers, compare the Western news with the other news he was receiving from, say, the Serbian newspapers, etc. And he would talk about these discrepancies in the media. And I didn't know what to believe. So I kind of got it in my head that I needed to go there. I needed to go to Bosnia. But how? I mean, <laughs> I actually didn't know my family there. Uh, and Dad was really the key to that. And how could I say, hey, Dad, so I want to go over to Bosnia and check this out. What do you reckon? It wasn't going to happen. It was too painful for him. He'd already lost people. He'd read the articles. He'd lost friends that he'd grown up with, etc. So I just kind of banked that. In high school, I developed an interest in photography. Uh, and so for university, I decided I would enrol in a Bachelor of Fine Arts majoring in photography here at Northern Territory University. Now, this course was great because the people that were enrolled mostly were mature-age students. There were only three of us that were straight out of high school. So I got to have this great wealth of information, these life's experiences from people. And I really enjoyed their stories. But I also met other people, and I ended up around my age, and I ended up having a really good eclectic mix of friends, and the parties got wackier and wackier. And I kept saying, I'm going to go to Bosnia. I got it in my head during these years that perhaps the way to get to Bosnia was to become a war photographer. <laughs> so, you know, why not? This is a legitimate way to get to Bosnia. And that way I could sort of, you know, say to Dad, hey, it's my job. But I didn't really know how that was going to happen either. So instead, I took up skydiving, fell in love, packed a backpack and went travelling. And I went to Canada, I worked in the States, I worked in Guatemala, I went to Mexico, Cuba, Turkey, Bulgaria, uh, the UK, Netherlands. I was so geographically close to Bosnia, but I still couldn't get there. And this really bothered me. I felt like I had failed on my mission. So on my way back to Australia, I drove around the East Coast and up through the centre. And uh, on that trip, I wrote a letter to my father. Now, I'd never actually expressed my interest in going to Bosnia to my dad because I knew it was too painful. So I wrote this letter explaining, hey, I went to all these great countries, some of which you wanted to go to, but I still haven't made it to your home country and this is really important to me. And now I, I need your support. So I posted the letter, made my way up through the centre, arrived in Tennant Creek. I had some friends living there at the time. So I stayed a couple of nights, checked in with the family. Hey, I'm okay, you know, life on the road's great. And my dad said, I read your letter. Ah, okay. It's a little bit nervous because, you know, I wasn't sure how he was going to react. I just figured he'd think I was being silly. 
Uh, I said, okay, so what did you think? And he said, well, the bloody thing made me cry. <laughs> Let's talk about this when you get home. I realised that my dad was now giving me permission to go back to the country that had broken his heart. And I eventually did. <laughs>